0: Hello and welcome to the Licensed to Queer podcast, where we're on a mission to uncover why James Bond appeals so much to LGBTQ plus people. Why not C007 from a different angle? Regular listeners of this podcast, or visitors to the Licensed to Queer website, or followers of the Instagram or Twitter accounts will know already how much I love the novel Double or Nothing, the newborn novel, written by Kim Sherwood. On the License Queer website, you will find my non-spoiler review of this book, my in-depth conversation with Kim Sherwood herself, where we went into many of the aspects of this book that I love in a non-spoilerish way. There's a cocktail recipe on there, inspired by the novel. And there's also, if you go to the In Other Media section, you'll find a link to a video on Roland Hume's YouTube, so Roland Hume, the romance novelist, we had a really nice conversation about the book with both huge fans of it. If you've not yet had a chance to read the book yourself, or if you're midway through it, then read it, finish it, and then come back and listen to this, because this is going to contain spoilers. This podcast is basically my love letter to one of the new double O characters, Joseph Dryden. And it's critiquing Dryden from a queer point of view, which is pretty easy to do, actually, for a change, because he's actually gay. But the interesting thing with Dryden is that he's a really good gay character, and as I'm going to go on to explore in just a few seconds in this piece, they don't come along very often. Enjoy. 004 Reasons Why Joseph Dryden Is The Gay Hero We've Been Waiting For Written and Read by David Lobridge There are so many pitfalls when it comes to creating a gay character who is realistic, sympathetic and unstereotypical that it's probably not surprising that most writers don't even bother trying. With Joseph Dryden, however, the first gay 00, Kim Sherwood shows everyone how it should be done. Fiction is full of bad gay characters. I don't just mean bad guys who are gay, although there are plenty of those. Above all, we queers have mostly been represented by people who are not very nice. The examples that spring most readily to mind in the Bond series are From Russia With Loves, Rosa Klebb, a bisexual aromantic in the novel and a lesbian in the film, Diamonds of Forever's handholding assassins, Winton Kidd, and first time assuming Silver in Skyfall. There was a time when we would accept any gay characters, however numerous their faults, because we didn't have much choice. We took any representation we could get. Among the more questionable characters in Bond, we've had coded lesbian in Goldfinger, Pussy Galore, powerless against Bond's magic penis, at least temporarily. If we're being generous, we could say that her hooking up with Bond was anomalous, one of those times in our lives when we surprise even ourselves in being attracted to someone who wasn't our type. Anthony Horowitz went with this idea in his continuation novel, Trigger Mortis, having Pussy resuming her sapphic calling. On the gay male front, we've had a few stereotype-reinforcing sissies, notably the hotel manager in the film of Moonraker, and Q's assistant, Fordyce, in the 1967 film of Casino Royale. Before Ben Whishaw's Q, coded as gay from Skyfall and Finally outed with a suitable choice of pronoun in No Time to Die, Bond's allies were rarely queer, and even if they were, their screen time was brief. Poor Henderson, in the film If You Only Live Twice, played by gay actor Charles Grey, gets stabbed through a paper screen, just as things are getting interesting. Brass-rubbing enthusiast Hilary Bray leaves a memorable impression, despite having only one scene in Honor Majesty's Secret Service although this is probably because we get to hear the voice of Bray actor George Baker dubbing George Lazenby for a further 40 minutes. Whether they are good guys, bad guys, or somewhere in between, at least no one can say Bond's queer characters are boring. But so many gay characters outside the Bond series simply fall short. When I use the phrase bad gay characters, I'm referring to all of those characters who just aren't very well written. There are undoubtedly many challenges with writing a realistic gay character. How do you possibly reflect all gay life, in its rich variety, in one character? I'm going to focus on the particular challenges of writing gay men here, which has its own nuances. Although a lot of what follows often applies to representing other queer identities. Gay men can be anywhere on the masculine-feminine spectrum as, for that matter, constraint men. So where do you locate your character? How do you resist making your character's sexual orientation their defining feature? Yes, sexual orientation is important, but it's not everything. How do you avoid the stereotypes that still surround many gay men, particularly their reputation for being sexually promiscuous and fearful of intimacy? How do you resist the social pressure to kill them at the end, or at least make them desperately unhappy? Double or Nothing gets all of this right from the off, providing a template of sorts, a model for other authors seeking to include gay characters in their own stories. So here I'm going to explore 004 things that the book absolutely nails, in its treatment of our first gay double O, Joseph Dryden. 001. Dryden's outing to the reader is not a big thing, but it is still a thing. You never stop coming out. Even when you're in a room with someone who you are almost certain is not going to hold your sexual orientation against you, When you're on the cusp of outing yourself again, it's highly likely that you will feel a burst of adrenaline. Perhaps perversely, it's almost a comfort when it does kick in, but then the consequences ensue. The increase of heart rate, a speeding up of the senses, fight or flight. Plastic our brains may be, capable of forming new neural pathways, But many gay people find this is a hard-wired bit of neural programming, the result of years of going through the same thought process, worrying what people are going to think of the whole of us because they may not like a fundamental part of us. Many fictional depictions of Cummings Out present this as a big moment. And it is a big moment for many of us. The first time, second, third... 223rd time we utter the words, I'm gay. It can make us feel like the world has shifted a little on its axis. Over time, it gets less momentous, although there will always be a specific context which makes us feel like we've only just emerged from the closet. If I'm with strangers, particularly in a very masculine environment, with no queer identifying people around me, I've become more guarded, about my sexual orientation. We first learn that Double or Nothing's Dryden is gay, not long after we're introduced to him at the end of Chapter 6. After Penny has briefed for on his mission to find out what villain Bertram Paradise is up to, Dryden asks what she needs him to do. Penny prevaricates a little, perhaps sensing that she's about to cross a professional-personal line She begins coyly, bringing his old friend Luke Luck, who is now working for Paradise, into the conversation. Dryden holds his breath before he goes, quote, loose through his body, a mental shrug. This doesn't have to be a gay thing. We would all tense up if someone brought up a former lover, especially if they were our boss. But at this point, Dryden isn't sure if Moneypenny does know they were lovers. Moneypenny isn't one to beat around the bush for too long. She says, we can do the surprise portion of the conversation, if you'd like, or we can just get down to it. After Dryden crosses his legs, a sign that he's getting defensive or trying hard not to appear defensive, he confesses that Luke was more than just my friend. Although there is a degree of uneasiness between Dryden and Moneypenny, We've moved on significantly from the don't ask, don't tell culture of the intelligent services of the past, memorably alluded to by Samantha Bond's Moneypenny in the film Tomorrow Never Dies. In grand Bond tradition, and to make sure that there is no ill-feeling between Moneypenny and Dryden, the chapter ends with some playful banter, centering, as it often does with James Bond himself, on the male sex organ, but here given a gay twist moneypenny tells dryden to check in with q to make sure everything's in working order meaning dryden's neural implant and perhaps something else dryden takes the offer bait i didn't know q leaned that way the joke about Q's sexual orientation only gets funnier when you find out later on that they are not a human being but a quantum computer so presumably they don't have any leanings at all. Crucially, it's Dryden himself who makes the gay joke. He's not inhibited about his sexual orientation now. It's out in the open with someone he trusts not to hold it against him. The second reason why Dryden is such a gay character is because He shows us that homophobia can make us stronger. Of all the challenges Dryden has overcome, feeling comfortable about his sexual orientation may be the least of them. Because of his wartime experiences, we are told he likely suffers from operator's syndrome, which makes him hypervigilant. Although his sexual orientation is not explicitly the cause of this, it's something that many gay men can connect with, like many gay men who cultivate relaxed exteriors for the benefit of onlookers, Dryden's a different story beneath the surface. His fight or flight mode does not take a lot to be activated. Although Sherwood tells us this is the legacy of being a killer since he was 16 years old, it is analogous with the experiences of many gay men and queer people in general, many of whom develop a form of hypervigilance. This is something I explored at length in my queer review of Quantum of Solace, but in short, we're constantly on edge because homophobia is always a possibility. One of Paradise's entourage, Yuri, is rampantly homophobic. When Dryden prevents a young maid from being assaulted by Yuri, the henchman tries to save face by telling Dryden, you are not my type, put on a skirt Then maybe I close my eyes? Dryden's comeback is the kind of thing we wish we'd all been quick witted enough to say when being on the receiving end of homophobic abuse. I don't think you closing your eyes would make you any more attractive. A few pages later, Sherwood presents gay readers with an even more empowering episode. Dryden feels Q, by his implant, directing some of his attention to burly gentlemen at the bar. Dryden isn't sure why they are looking so intently at him and Luke, but he suspects it may be because he is the only black man around and he and Luke are the only openly gay men in the place. Brilliantly, Dryden and Luke are unapologetically holding hands over the table, something many of my gay friends still feel unable to do in public but which my husband and me do at almost every opportunity. In her omniscient narration, Sherwood tells us that Dryden is used to both racism and homophobia, so thinks little else about the onlookers until one of them flings at them a slur Dryden would prefer not to translate or deal with right now. It may be a racist epithet or a homophobic one, or both. Although Luke is white, it's highly likely that the attacker would possess less than enlightened views about miscegenation. While Dryden tries to downplay it, Luke isn't having any of it. The two gay men incapacitate their homophobic attackers with ease, Dryden having to hold Luke back from hurting them even further. And possibly killing them. It's difficult for a gay reader not to relate to Luke's righteous anger and even bloodlust. How many times have we fantasized about being so physically capable that we could defend ourselves against anyone who dares to wound us physically or verbally using our anger against the perpetrators? The scene has the potential to stand out like a sore thumb. After all, bar room fights are pretty rare in Bond, and when they do, they always move the story along. See, for example, the meeting of Pam and Bond in Licence to Kill's Barrelhead Bar. What stops this Dryden bar fight being viewed as an exercise in wish fulfilment for gay readers, not that I would have had any problem with that, is Sherwood expertly weaving it into the plot. Dryden uses the fight to disguise his palming of a much-needed mobile phone. Most of all, like Pam and Bond, fighting together brings Dryden and Luke closer together. Much closer together. The third reason why Dryden is such a great gay character is because... The gay sex between Dryden and Luke is tender and sexy. Let's just get this out of the way now. There's no such thing as gay sex. Everything gay people like to do, many less inhibited straight people do too. If you don't believe me, try this peer reviewed 2017 study funded by the health departments of 20 U.S. cities, which asserted that, quote, heterosexual anal intercourse, aka HAI, is not an uncommon behaviour, with 36% of women and 44% of men aged 22 to 44 years old in the United States reported ever having HAI in their lifetime. Even higher figures are reported in some UK-based research. The National Survey of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyles, the world's largest, most detailed studies of sexual behaviour, have found that anal sex has become more popular among heterosexual people each time the study has been conducted. And don't get me started on rimming, but if you're interested, there's an Australian study from 2021 which will help shatter some misconceptions. And yet, despite all this, there's a common misconception that sex between two men is a world away from sex between a man and a woman, particularly when it comes to tenderness. Now, gay people can be as animalistic as straight people in the bedroom or bathroom or wherever, but that doesn't preclude being tender. In chapter 17 of Double or Nothing, Dryden makes the first move and it would appear he's immediately heading in an atavistic direction by slipping his arms around Luke's waist. But before we've even started another sentence, the next clause has him pressing his face to Luke's neck, searching out warmth, searching out home. The paragraphs that follow make it clear that Dryden and Luke are more than just hot ends of the collar for each other, they are woven into each other's lives. Sherwood economically uses telling details, like Fleming did, to make the scene both tender and erotic, as a reference to what happened years before while they were both on active duty in Luke's tent and how it made Dryden realise something about himself. A tantalising ellipsis. In the present, the nightmare inducing colour of the bedsheets, a joke between the lovers, provides an amusing reason for resorting to using the floor. If Double or Nothing was to be adapted for the screen, the Bond series' first sex scene between two men would undoubtedly cause something of a headache. How much to show? How much to conceal? Sherwood doesn't have that problem, her sparingly chosen words give our imaginations everything we need. Tenderly true to life, the lovers come down from their consummation without feeling the need to reacquaint themselves with their clothing. Luke only reaches for his boxers when Dryden dredges up a painful memory, his nakedness not apparent until Dryden starts stripping back the years. fourth reason why Dryden's such a great gay character is that Dryden and his boyfriend don't die. At least not yet. Notoriously, 00s have a short life expectancy, so a gay 00 is doubly vulnerable. The biggest pitfall of all when dealing with gay characters and the one far too many storytellers still fall into is giving in to the compulsion to kill them off. Don't get me wrong, there are many great gay stories which end with the death of one or more protagonists. And it's not that gay characters shouldn't be considered fair game. But I often get the feeling writers bring gay characters' lives to a premature end because they just don't know what to do with them once they've given them a glimpse of happiness. No wonder Bury the Gays, or Dead Lesbian Syndrome, Such a widely recognised and lazy trope. If you're going to kill your gay character, you should be really sure it's important to the story and not just because of social pressure. Making gay characters disposable sustains the idea that gay people are not as good as straight people. Imagine the cumulative effect that reading all those downer endings has on gay people. And their hopes for the future. Well, some of us don't have to imagine it. We've lived it. Letting a gay character live means the reader has to take a gay character seriously. If two or more men are in a loving relationship, we have to entertain the shocking idea that gays can live happily ever after. Killing off one or more of them reasserts heteronormativity. The presumption is that the presumed straight audience will be able to relax because the world is back to normal. One of my favourite gay stories with a happy ending is E.M. Forster's semi-autobiographical Morris, a novel in which two men get to live happily ever after. Quite shocking stuff for 1913 when Forster started writing it, but wait! Forster didn't let it be published until after his death, nearly 60 years later, in 1971. He was concerned that his reputation would be destroyed if he released Morris in his lifetime. Forster feared the happy ending would be viewed as far-fetched. If you look carefully across the decades, you can find the odd happy ending in literature and film. I was far too young to watch My Beautiful Laundrette on its initial cinema release in 1985. The love story between two men, a British Pakistani and a white former fascist, ends happily. But it's one of few exceptions to the rule. Even now, the trope is alive and well. Unlike so many ill-fated gay protagonists, some of the most popular TV shows of recent years, such as Game of Thrones, Killing Eve, Supernatural and The 100 have all offed gay characters unnecessarily. I'll admit that I did spend most of my first read-through of Double or Nothing fully expecting at least Lucky Luke to meet a premature end, not just because he's gay but because he occupies a role often taken up by the Bond girl. The bury the gays trope extends depressingly well to Bond girls, as Sam Rogers has explored in his article on the Licensed to Queer website. In the final paragraphs of chapter 45, right near the end of the book, it looks very unlikely that either Luke or Dryden will make it out alive. The action is both sadistically violent and touchingly poignant, redolent of Fleming's passages where even Bond starts to suspect the end is inexorably near and he will need to make the ultimate sacrifice. In particular. It reminded me of the end of Moonraker, with Fleming writing Bond into a corner, making us think the only way Bond can destroy the villain's evil hardware is to take himself out with it. In this action-packed climax, as she does throughout Double or Nothing, Sherwood plays with our expectations. With Dryden and Luke trapped in the engine room of Paradise's luxury yacht, she tells us that Luke is down with an enemy rifle aimed at his head. Sherwood makes us wait a whole agonising ten pages to find out that Dryden managed to save Luke, who is not dead, but is merely unconscious. This gay is far from buried, and he takes his turn by rescuing Dryden, his lover-in-arms, in the nick of time. With two books remaining in the series, I'll be on tenterhooks the whole time, dreading the demise of Dryden or Luke. It's not as if Sherwood is afraid to eliminate her main players, as anyone who has finished double and think, will be very aware of by now. I have no doubt, however, that should 004 and or his reignited form of flame meet their ends, death will come with consequences. Sherwood certainly has what it takes to send a 00 out to die, but I'm certain she won't kill Dryden on a whim. Thank you for listening to this episode of the License to Queer podcast. Just a reminder, you can access the review of Double or Nothing, my conversation with Kim and the cocktail recipe and more to do with Double or Nothing. And we're not finished yet. There's going to be more articles and more collaborations to come in the near and further future. So keep your eye on licensestocueer.com as well as our social media on Instagram and Twitter at license to Queer. Thank mm-hmm. you.